Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. I don't know. It seems like we should give equal time to new people to come bring them up on stage and make them all feel welcome, but that would be, you know, fun. But uh, I don't know, how many of you still believe God's got a plan and everything works together for good? Good. I think that's true. And uh, we're entering some interesting days. I was thinking about Paul's words, I have become all things to all people in order that by all means possible I might save some. I have become all things to all people in order that by all means possible I might save some. I, I'm not sure we appreciate the radical nature of the kingdom of God. I, I think what we are, largely, culturally, is that we are folks who are who we are and are what we are. We, we grew up where we grew up, we think what we think, we feel what we feel, uh, we have the experiences as we've had, and then we sprinkle a little bit of God over the top of that. It's like a, sort of like the topping on our ice cream sundae. I don't know, that just popped into my head, ice cream. As opposed to, we are aliens and strangers, practicing a culture unheard of, unseen, with a hospitality that no one, a revolutionary kind of hospitality that loves and cares for others, in a way that nothing else on the planet has, could, or ever will. And I think that the, the radical nature of the kingdom of God is such that all we can sort of do is catch glimpses of it. So that Jesus is constantly trying to give us parables, that the, that the gospel writers are constantly trying to create images and ideas that might spark our imagination towards what this kingdom is really like. So Jesus is constantly saying things like, oh, it's like a mustard seed. Oh, it's like a treasure that's found in a field. Oh, it's, it's like a little bit of yeast that's worked into the dough. It's all of these metaphors and similes that fall far short, but it resonates with something inside of us because we long for such a place. Now, maybe you don't necessarily long for it in the greater culture, but you do long for it in your home and family, don't you? Don't you imagine a home and a family where all of the people, though very different, get along well? I don't know. I don't think you can have more than one child and have much continuity. In fact, I'm not sure you can get married and have a lot of continuity because you're bringing different perspectives and people into space. And we live in a culture that values the, that we become homogenous. Let's, let's put everybody in a big pot and, and add some heat and, and then eventually they'll all look alike and sound alike and smell alike. And, but that is not the vision of the kingdom of God to erase our differences. It is not the vision of the kingdom of God to tolerate our differences. It is the vision of the kingdom of God that we celebrate and we recognize the strength that comes in our diversity and we lean into that reality. We, we don't shy away from it. We're not trying to get everybody to be the same. And I'm not sure we, that we really lean into the 
revolutionary nature of the kingdom of God. Though I do believe something deep inside of us longs for it. A place like that. Where people are free to be themselves. To be loved and appreciated for who they are and how they're made. Where we look at each other and go, you don't need to be like me. Because if you were all like me, what a terrible place it would be. <laughs> Boring. Dysfunctional. Limited. So that when Paul writes about this kingdom vision and idea, he writes radical words. Romans 12.1 Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and prove what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body and many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. It's a radical vision of the kingdom of God in which we allow people to bring their diversity and we capitalize because we recognize we're a body and we're not all having the same function in the body, that there's great differences between us, but the kingdom of God recognizes the worth. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, listen, he has placed the members of the body exactly as he wants them to be. It's a vision of interdependence. It's a, vid it's a vision of choosing to belong to each other choosing to respect one another, choosing to be honoring to one another, even though we may not all agree. And it seems to me that in this last year, the church has been anything but that. It has become divided and pejorative. One one group pushing one way and another group pushing another way. Shouldn't we model the kingdom of God alive on earth? Shouldn't we model what it means to be truly interdependent, not because we all agree, but because we recognize the providence of God to bring people together into a diverse body that represents the actual kingdom of God. Not a single amen. I mean, I know our online crowd is just, they're just amen and going strong. Thank you. When we start to think about what has happened in this last year, it's probably a broader conversation. Let's have it. There's a, there's a new pandemic in the world and it's not coronavirus. It's loneliness. In a recent review in psychiatric research, 114 studies were analyzed. Loneliness was found to be a factor that is either considered medium or large in the lives of most people in the United States. 
leading to depression, anxiety, and other disorders having to do with social interaction. You understand what I'm saying? This didn't just start in the last year. It's been going on for a long, long time. And here's where the stuff gets interesting. If you were born before 1964, you are a boomer. You're a boomer. You're a baby boomer, unless you're a part of the greatest generation. Because uh, the greatest generation, you know, preceded the boomers. But there aren't many of those running around anymore. You'd have to be up in your 90s now to be a part of the greatest generation. But then the boomers, we started right at the end of World War II, about 1945, and we lasted till about 1964. If you were born 64 or earlier, you're considered to be a boomer. Studies find that if you are a boomer, then you feel less lonely than other people. Consistently, people who were raised during that time created deeper social interactions. There were no cell phones. We didn't have all of those other things. We just talked and wrote letters and made phone calls and did crazy, crazy stuff like that. <laughs> now, what, that, what the studies find then is that if you were born after 1964, you have a much, much more likely process of feeling lonely. That, that those of us who are older ought to have a great deal of compassion and sympathy and understanding and take some responsibility for the fact that people coming behind us don't feel the same kind of natural connections. It's not as easy as it used to be. And that's not because we were wonderfully connected. It's because the world was different and, and the circumstances were different. And it's not sufficient for us older folks to look at younger folks and go, well, you guys need to just get with it. Amen? Need a little support going on in here. In the recent article from a group called the Amen Clinics they identified eight habits of lonely people in modern culture. Number one, lonely people are always busy. The busyness has become one of the most vivid signs of loneliness because people stay busy so they do not have to live in their feelings. Number two, you shop a lot. That studies continuously find that people who feel lonely find comfort in buying things. Anybody notice that over in Glendale there is a new Amazon Fulfillment Center being built? That's all y'all. <laughs> That's all y'all. I drove by your front porches. <laughs> They're like, we got, I don't know what's going over there in 91214 and 91208, but we got to get another Fulfillment Center. It's just, they're going crazy. Number three, you're judgmental. Lonely people are judgmental. They become introspective, and because they become introspective, and they become fearful, and they're not interacting and learning and hearing as many stories, there is a tendency for lonely people to be judgmental. Now, here's a fascinating thing. The studies find that people who consider themselves to be lonely actually show different brain activity than those who do not consider themselves to be lonely. Did you know that? I'm going to read it to you. There seems to be a sign of increased activity in the area of the brain called the anterior cingulate gyrus, the ACG. 
And that little part of your brain is involved in error detection. And when it gets overactive, you get stuck with critical and negative thoughts. We're not just talking about personality. We're talking about the chemistry of our brains changing because of the reality of loneliness. That it actually shows up. (laughs) Number four, you don't share vulnerability. We just don't talk about how we're hurting or what's going on or our uncertainty. We have a tendency to talk in much more concrete terms. This is how it is. This is how it is. This is how I see it. This is how it works. This is the right thing. Instead of, I don't know, I'm scared. I don't really get it. I don't know where this is headed. I don't know what to do next. Number five, lonely people are rigid thinkers. They've lost the ability to be flexible in their thinking. Lost the ability to go, I don't know, maybe. Let me think about that. I don't know, I'll read that article. Yeah, I'll watch that documentary. I'll think about that. I'll consider it. Number six, lonely people prefer to connect online. They prefer to connect online. Are you one of those people who have thousands of followers on social media, but you don't have any friends or family you could call on if you were hurting or feeling lonely? Social media, studies find, is not a replacement for real connections. And in fact, people who spend significant time on social media, the study finds, display higher levels of feelings of loneliness than others. Number seven, you're surrounded by lonely people. The studies find that lonely people tend to connect with other lonely people. And they share and commiserate their loneliness. In fact, there is a almost 50% chance that the people you meet and connect with will be fellow lonely people as opposed to other people who feel strong in their relationships and connections. Number eight, you have a quick temper. I don't think we need to talk about that one. A recent NBC's news story summed up the shocking results. Since 1985, the number of people in the U.S. with no close friends has tripled The rise of the internet and ironically social media are partially to blame. Experts believe that it's not the quantity of social interactions that matter, it's the quality. Douglas Nemchik, the chief medical officer of behavioral health for Cigna notes, it is critical that young people have spaces where they can connect face to face to form meaningful relationships. This claim is confirmed by results from the study. 88% of people who have a daily in-person interaction with other people are healthier overall, and their mental health is much better than those who do not. And then here's a little closing quote from David Sue, a social scientist and author of a great book called Untethered. What we need to overcome the isolation in our culture Again, you understand what I'm talking about? This is a social scientist. He just wrote a book about what it means to be in relationship with others. What we need to overcome isolation in our culture are advocates for the most isolated among us, passionate community builders from every sector, entrepreneurs who are obsessed with building new and refurbished solutions for this age-old problem, visionary funders to advance the agenda, and artists and storytellers with a gift for continually revealing our condition. That's a huge challenge. Let me just ask you, where are we as the Church of Jesus Christ in meeting these very real needs in our world and in our culture? Are we reflective of the radical hospitality 
that Jesus envisioned and was passionate about. Let me read you a story about Jesus and his interaction, and we'll draw a few conclusions. It takes place over in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, and so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet wiping, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, Simon, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who has the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell, her, tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's a classic moment in which hospitality, an unclean kind of hospitality, is being practiced by Jesus. So for a moment with me, if you just use your imagination, I want to set up the scene for you because uh, there are three distinct characters in the scene. And so the first character in the scene, of course, is the woman. And she is not just a woman who has a bad reputation. She's that kind of woman. You know, she's that kind of woman. Uh, Simon labels her very, you know, he would know who this woman is and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So we have her, this, this person who is in need, who is outside the purity circle, who has a lot of issues. Uh, we know her specific story and we know her reputation. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we have Simon. Now, Simon is a Pharisee, and he's invited Jesus into his home, which would suggest he's a prominent Pharisee, uh, that he considers Jesus to be a person uh, who has some, uh, you know, draw, has a little pull. Uh, he's popular, and so Simon is getting connected to the popularity. He's having Jesus into his home. He's a highly enlightened. He's very woke. Uh, there's this new teacher in town. He's having him in and uh, likely to discredit him at some level to prove why, you know, his orthodoxy is correct and Jesus's is wrong, but he is having him in the space. He has a lockdown orthodoxy. He understands what's right and wrong. He has very few questions about life. He has very few questions about how the kingdom works. He has very few questions about who God is or how he works or his own righteousness. He's not struggling. He's figured it out. He's answered the question. He's dotted the I's. He's crossed the T's. He's, he's resolutely in the space of purity and holiness. He gets it. He wishes everybody else did, but they don't. But he's still helping. He's still opening his home. He's still doing some stuff. And in the middle, we have Jesus, the representative of the unclean hospitality of the kingdom of God. Now, in Texas, we would say you could fall off of the road on either side of this, in either of these ditches. Now, do people here understand the word ditches? Because we don't have them in California. 
we don't have enough rain to require ditches. But in other parts of the country, if you build a road, you better have a ditch. And you better have a ditch on both sides of the road because there will be a rain and there will be water. And it'll be an ungodly amount of rain, like, you know, hey, did you know it rained 12 inches today? Like that kind of rain. You know, so we have ditches, you know, and you can drive off the road in either ditch. Well, that's what's going on here. That Jesus is standing on the road and he's saying, this is the way, the truth, and the life. This is how you live right here. But you can fall off of it. You can get over in this ditch in which we don't have any sort of guidance or rules or you just live and you just don't and you just take life as it comes and you don't learn much and you don't mature much and you don't get over it. You just keep making the same mistakes and you just live over here all the time and you just, you're free to be you, but it ain't working great, but you're still free to be you. <laughs> or you can fall off the ditch on the other side. I created a perfect orthodoxy. I have all the answers to all the questions. My theology is pristine. I got very little questions. I got no time for people who don't have it together. They need to get over here and meet the criteria the way I say they need to meet the criteria or they can't come over and be in this part of, my, of the world and in this part of life. And Jesus, who brings the gospel of Jesus Christ, says, I'm going to stay right in the middle of the road and I'm going to love this person and I'm going to love that person. I'm going to stand right here in the middle and I'm going to talk about what's going to happen with her, and I'm going to talk about what's going to happen with him. And I'm going to exercise a hospitality in this space that, that, that makes a way for this to work, makes a way for the diversity of the kingdom to be alive. And so he does. I observe five things that he does that I think matter to us. Number one, he embraces the brokenness. I don't know about you, but I don't like messiness. I like peace. This is not a good time to be me. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, just in utter wisdom, somehow we decided to have children. That mitigates against peace. With four children. <laughs> Priceless. For those online that didn't hear that, somebody said, what a learner. <laughs> said what? Slower. Slow learner. As is to demonstrate. <laughs> Where were we? <laughs> Four. I'm not sure you online people have any idea. It was slow learner. You're a slow learner. Four. I didn't mention they were girls. But what I would really love is that, you know, that all of us in our diversity could enjoy and get along and not have brokenness. Don't you want that in your home? But you know, here's the truth of it. If you want to have hospitality, if you want to connect, you've got to lean into brokenness. You've got to hear what's wrong. You can't always want to shy away from it. You can't always want to pull away. You can't always want to be separate from it. You've got to lean into it. You've got to hear it. You've got to embrace it. And I think sometimes in the life of the church, and we've been doing this for a lot of decades, show up, 
get dressed up, not just in your clothes, but with your attitude and your spirit and your facial expression, and walk into this place and be good. Be happy, be well-adjusted. How you doing? Great! God's blessing me. I just, it just oh, it just can't get any better. Because why? Because we don't like brokenness. We just don't want to dwell in it. We don't want to traffic in it. And yet Jesus consistently put himself in space over and over and over where he was in the middle of the brokenness. As if there is no higher calling to a human being not to be okay. Not to have it figured out. But to be in the middle of hurting people. He embraces the brokenness. Number two, he welcomes the awkwardness. I don't know. This is an awkward situation. He's come to a fine home, to a dinner party. He, he has the opportunity to advance his career. He's in the home of a prominent leader who has access to funding and influence. He could be a person who has a great deal of opportunity in these moments. And then out of the crowd comes a woman, a woman who is known by her story, but also by her reputation. And she comes to Jesus, and she falls, I mean, imagine how awkward this is. Comes to him, falls at his feet, and starts to cry. And he's just eating his chili dog. I mean, <laughs> she's sitting eating his dinner, and she's crying and weeping, and then she realizes that she's cried all over his feet, and she's got nothing to wipe his feet with, and so she takes down her hair. That's not good. She's wiping his feet with her hair, and then she's kissing his feet. And then at some point, she has a little veil of perfume around her, on a necklace, and she opens it, and she pours it on his feet. I mean, there's a whole thing going on here. And everybody else is awkwardly uncomfortable in the moment. And Simon's over there, the host, going, well, Jesus knew if he was really a prophet, he'd know about this woman and you know what kind of woman she is. And Jesus says, Simon, what are you thinking about? Let me tell you a story. And he embraces the awkwardness. I don't know about you, but I keep thinking that the greatest expression of the kingdom of God is when I get everything cleaned up and there's no more awkwardness. But Jesus seems to think that the great story of the kingdom of God is when the holiness of God meets the messiness of human beings and we just live in the awkwardness of it. We don't have it all figured out. We don't have all the answers. We don't get it all. We're just content to live in the awkwardness because the awkwardness represents that the kingdom of God is intersecting the need and the messiness of human beings. We don't want to get it all fixed. We don't want to get it all cleaned up. We don't want to get over the awkward moments. We want to live in them. We want to sit in them. It's when we're sitting in the awkward moments that we're hearing someone's real heart. When the message of the gospel that's transformational can then become bearing on the life of someone who is struggling. It's a big deal. Isaiah, when he sees God high and lifted up, what's his response? Awkward! Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have beheld the one and only. Awkward! Jesus leans in and welcomes the awkwardness. He knows that it means something. Number three, he ignores the labels. Isn't that an interesting one? He would know who she is and what kind of woman she is. We're doing that 
In a minute, just so you know, we're going to talk about vaccines and maxes, max, masks because that's something's going to happen this week and we're going to need to talk about it. So if you came waiting to hear that, you're going to hear it in a minute. <laughs> I just would highlight that right now because we do that. We label people. Oh, you're one of those people that wants to wear a mask. Oh, you're one of those people that don't want to wear a mask. Oh, you're one of those people that wants a vaccine. Oh, you're one of the people that don't want the vaccine. Listen, to be the church of Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God in the days that are coming, we're going to have to grow up and we're going to have to have honor and respect for one another. And we're going to have to resist putting labels on people. Some people have decided the solution is I'll just go to a church that carries my label. That seems to be counter to our call where we are the diverse body of Jesus Christ. The diverse body of Jesus Christ. Number four, he offers forgiveness. Forgiveness is a tricky business. It's driven by grace. And he, he highlights in this moment, he says, your sins are forgiven. And Simon is upset by that. And what we've got going on here is just a, a collision of identity, a collision of ideas about what forgiveness means. Because here's what's going on. This woman has no claim to forgiveness. She has no reason under the sun to expect or to want God to forgive. But Simon believes he has every reason to deserve great forgiveness. He's doing it right. He's living it right. He's got the orthodoxy. He's got the perspective. He did the research. He's got the understanding. And Jesus sits in this moment. And he's trying to say, listen, the same grace that's saving her is saving you. You're not getting saved because of your orthodoxy. You're not being forgiven because of how well you live. You're not being forgiven because of what you do or what you say. You're being forgiven by the grace of God. And so here's a story. There's a story about a man and, and he owed 500 denarii. And there's another that owned 50 and, and, and a, the, the owner forgave them both. Who loves the most? And Simon goes, well, the one who's forgiven the most. And then Jesus in his grace doesn't go. Because <laughs> Jesus is full of grace. So he just says, you've answered correctly, Simon. This woman loves much because she's been forgiven much. And that's how forgiveness works. Some of us feel like we've done it so well, we deserve a lot of forgiveness and a lot of grace, but you can't earn grace. And some of us are caught up in the reality. So Jesus continually says, I didn't come to help those who are well. I came to help those who are sick. And he's not saying that those who are well don't need help. He's just saying they don't know it. And it's just so hard to deal with. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I mean, you remember that ditch we talked about? You can fall off on either side. You can fall off on the side of having no rule, no guidance, no law. But it is equally sinful to be self-righteous. And conceited and uncompassionate towards others. Number five, he invites transformation. He says to the woman, you're forgiven. <laughs> and Simon's like, woo, not sure you should be saying that kind of stuff. And then Jesus turns this story over. So, 
So in the story now, as we've followed along, we have this heroic leader, religious leader, who is Simon. We're welcomed into his home. He has wealth. He has power. He has influence. And then we have this woman who has crawled, literally crawled out of the crowd and created a spectacle. And now what does God do? I mean, what does Jesus do? It is God. I did say it, you know. But he turns it upside down. This woman becomes the hero of the story <laughs> because she's been forgiven much. She loves much. And Simon, because you've been forgiven little, <laughs> you love little. And all of that does not represent the power of the kingdom of God, but a heart that's been truly transformed and full of grace and full of love. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, the governor of our state was walking somewhere, and somebody said, hey, what's, what's going to happen as we look to the future? And he, in a moment, said, well, come June 15th, everything's going to be different. <laughs> so we've been anticipating something's going to change. And we're starting to get, you know, little leaks of pieces of paper that are, you know, they're trickling out. It doesn't look like it's going to be all that different. <laughs> but we're going to be different. So here's what we're thinking. I become all things to all people in order by all means possible I might save some. So we recognize that come next week, and we don't know what, you've got to watch this week. We're going to try to get some things up on video. We haven't seen the formal announcement. We've only seen some precursors that have been sent to us. We've tried to watch and learn and understand, and so there's several things that are going to happen in these next few weeks. But we think, based on what we understand right now, that next week when you come, if you come to this service, we'll ask you to wear your mask into this place. Once you're seated, you can take your mask off to worship together. Okay? Just, just like you do at a restaurant. We're trying to respect the spectrum of people because we have folks here who never want to wear a mask again, ever, 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 ever. And we have people who need to wear a mask. You know? And so if you're one of those people and you need to wear a mask, we, we will have deep respect for the fact that you feel the need to do that. We won't despise you. We won't accuse you of being afraid. We won't accuse you of being small-minded because that's not who we are and that's not what we are and that's not what we're going to be. Okay? And then there are some folks that have conditions and understanding that they want to be in a room where masks are mandatory. Well, we'll try to figure that out too. We'll try to make overflow a place where masks are mandatory. We're going to ask you folks when you come in, because what is going away, you don't need to register next week. Uh, we think you won't need to register next week. We, we don't think you'll have to be socially distanced anymore, you know. But we're going to ask you, if you're coming in and you're going to take your mask off, move down front so you're only infecting me. Because our hope would be that if you're a person that feels like for your safety you need to have a mask and you don't want to be around people who aren't wearing masks, and then we're going to hold you upstairs for a little while and hopefully then we can say in the back row, you know, you can come and sit on the back two or three rows and then all these people are they're, they're going to spread their germs forward and you because we want what? We want every single person to feel esteemed and safe. This is the church of Jesus Christ. Everybody ought to feel welcome and safe in this place. Amen? Amen. Amen. So we're going to work on it. I will tell you this. You can read the guidelines when they come out. We will not be in the business of checking credentials at the door. We're not checking to see who or what. 
We won't ask you to wear a sticker. We don't need you to bring proof of your vaccination or the lack thereof. Those are your choices and they're personal. And we're not going to look down on folks who don't feel like they want to get vaccines and we're not going to celebrate folks who feel like they do. We are not going to divide over this. We are going to be the church of Jesus Christ, whether we get it or understand it or not. Amen? Amen. We will not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but we will look at ourselves with sober judgment, recognizing that we belong to each other. We belong to each other. We choose. We choose to be interdependent on one another. And we're going to celebrate the kingdom of God. And we're going to get through this. We've done our very best to do everything we've known to do. We've prayed. We've sought. We've wanted to keep people safe. I will tell you this. I'll say it. I'll set it through this thing. If, if my decisions would have endangered or caused someone to die from this pandemic, I, I don't know that I could have lived with it. So we've done our best, and we're going to keep doing our best, and we're going to invite you to take individual responsibility for your choices and your journey, and we're going to invite you to love each other and love each other and love each other and love each other. Because I want to tell you this, isolation and loneliness is a big deal. And this culture has divided. And we have labeled, and we have decided who's right and who's wrong, and sadly, we've dressed it up in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who constantly lives in the middle of the road and tries to love people and keep them out of the ditches on both sides. Let's be those people. Let's be that church. Let's be the kingdom of God alive on earth. Here you go. I'm going to close with this. What we need in order to overcome the circumstances we are in are advocates who will stand for the most isolated among us. We need passionate community builders from every sector. We need entrepreneurs who are obsessed with building new and refurbished solution for this age-old problem. We need visionary funders who will advance the agenda. We need artists and storytellers with a gift for continually revealing our condition. Will you be one of those people? Amen. Will you be one of those people that stands for the hospitality of the kingdom of God, a radical hospitality that is imperfect and unclean, but we just love each other, and we just keep overcoming, and we keep living out our call to be the kingdom of God alive on earth. God, would you help us? We're going to sing these words, and they're not just words, they're a commitment. I'll do, I'll go, whatever you need, whatever you ask, whatever you require of me. This isn't about me. It's not about my comfort zone. It's not about my opinions. I'm going to live every day and pray every day and seek every day to be obedient to your will, and, and I'm going to try to do what I believe is right. But I'm also going to do my best to love others as myself. And while we all have opinions and ideas about how it ought to work and what makes sense to us, we're going to have grace for others who have a different experience or perspective or need. We're not going to label them. If we knew the story, if we knew the underlying circumstances, if we knew all there was to know, we'd have respect for each other. And we all need it. May we be that. May we be 
the kingdom of God alive on earth. Our prayer is that your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Will you hear our response? We pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said together. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond to the word. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.